But then the angel of the Lord saw her in the wilderness, and he said to her, Hagar, where have you come from, and where are you going? But the angel of the Lord saw her. That's verse 7 of Genesis 16. And with these words, a truly appalling story suddenly takes a deeply meaningful turn. For here, with these words, we suddenly gain insight into a God who cares. Here, with these words, we suddenly gain insight into a God who understands. Here, with these words, we suddenly gain insight into a God who sees. For let us understand, here in this wilderness stands a young girl who has just been battered and abused, who's been exploited and cast out, who's been taken advantage of and then written off. And up until now, there's been nothing even remotely hopeful or redemptive about this story. And thus, in order to understand the significance of all that follows from here, we must first understand that had the angel of the Lord not appeared in verse 7, none of the characters involved, not Abraham, not Sarah, not Hagar, none of them, would have done anything to alter the trajectory of this story. No, the horror of it all would have continued unabated. Hagar would have continued to plot onward through the wilderness, and Abraham and Sarah would have simply shrugged their shoulders and continued onward with their lives. But alas, here in verse 7, quote, the angel of the Lord saw Hagar, to which in stunned response, Hagar marvels out loud, you are Elroy, you are a God who sees. You are a God who sees. We'll come back to that in just a moment. For now, though, I want to shift gears and I want to talk about F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic novel, The Great Gatsby. Written in 1925, The Great Gatsby follows the lives of several wealthy denizens of East and West Egg, New York. And the book, while being about many things, ultimately depicts the ever-expanding materialism of the modern era and with it, the devaluation of moral virtue. And these realities are drawn out in several ways throughout the book, but nowhere are they made more demonstrable than in the characters of Tom and Daisy Buchanan. Wealthy socialites, Daisy indulges in an emotional affair with her old beau Jay Gatsby, while her husband, Tom, a true prince of a guy, carries on an affair with a married woman named Myrtle Wilson. Now, Myrtle Wilson, it's important we understand, comes from a much lower socioeconomic position than does Tom Buchanan. And thus, Myrtle and her husband have neither the money, nor the power, nor the position that Tom and Daisy have. And this is not an incidental fact in Fitzgerald's book. Because come the end of the book, both Gatsby and Myrtle have been killed, both of them due to the carelessness of Daisy and Tom. And while justice and order would suggest that Daisy and Tom ought to be held responsible for the wreckage that they have caused, they're not. 
Instead, they simply go on with their lives, not pausing to look back on the devastation that they have wrought. And so it is that Fitzgerald writes in a memorable line at the novel's end, and I quote, They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together. They were careless people. They smashed up things and then retreated. Okay, enough with this book report. Here's why I bring up The Great Gatsby this morning. Throughout the novel, there is an image that recurs several times, an image that underscores a principal theme of the book. It is an image of large, piercing eyes on an otherwise fading billboard. Now, this billboard, importantly, stands just between West Egg and Manhattan in an economically depressed area known as the Valley of Ashes the locale in which George and Myrtle Wilson live. And of this billboard, Fitzgerald writes, and again I quote, Here above the gray land and the spasms of bleak dust which drift endlessly over it, these eyes brood over the solemn dumping ground below. Over the solemn dumping ground below. Or as Fitzgerald's contemporary T.S. Eliot would express this idea over the wasteland below. The point. This image represents for Fitzgerald the fading of an idea. Once this image conveys, there was a belief that careless people would have to pay for their carelessness. Once there was a belief that a transcendent power oversaw Earth's affairs. Once there was a belief that there was a God who sees. But now Fitzgerald is saying that idea is fading away. And with it Fitzgerald is saying the careless get away with their carelessness scot-free. The world has become but a wilderness a wasteland, a valley of ashes, a place where the powerful can smash up things and then discard the wreckage in their retreat. Leading us back now to Hagar, alone in her own valley of ashes. Here, having herself been discarded like waste, she has taken flight to the wilderness, to her own kind of wasteland, If you'll recall, months earlier, her employer, Sarah, had given Hagar over to her husband, Abraham, so as to bear Abraham a child. And Hagar, we must note, has no say in this affair. She is simply an instrument for her employer's wishes. And so the deed gets done, and no sooner has it been done, and no sooner has Hagar become pregnant, which was the plan, Then suddenly Sarah becomes bitter with Hagar for being pregnant. The whole thing is an absolute mess. It's one of those parts of scripture that we wish just were not there. But alas, there it is, right there in Genesis 16. 
Abraham and Sarah used this young girl for their own procreative purposes. And then once she turns up pregnant, they make her life so miserable that she feels she must flee from them into the barren wilderness. That is the story. And again, we must note of the story. There is no sign in the text that Abraham and Sarah are concerned about any of this. There is no sign that they are going to send a search party out hunting for this young girl. In short, there is no sign that they care. But that is why verse 7 of this text is so hugely significant. Because here in verse 7, in the midst of Hagar's flight, in the midst of her isolation and devastation and shame, here in the midst of all of that, in verse 7, the text says, and I quote, but the angel of the Lord saw her in the wilderness and said to her, Hagar, where are you coming from and where are you going? It really is a hard and harrowing story. And we quite naturally like to read right past this part of the story and come to the part of the story where Sarah gives birth to Isaac, at which point the story of our spiritual grandparents takes on a much rosier complexion. But we do ourselves and our faith tradition a disservice when we do that. For there are important lessons for us to glean in this part of the story. Lessons for us about who God is, and also lessons for us about who we are ourselves. For if you'll look closely at the text, when God appears to Hagar in the desert, Hagar cannot believe what she is witnessing. Who am I, Hagar is essentially asking God in this moment, who am I that you would appear to me, that you would care about me? I am no one, she is saying. All of my life, I have been at the mercy of others. I have no power, no value, no significance. And now I'm broken and despair and I can't take it anymore. To which God in verse 10 essentially responds, rubbish, rubbish. You are not no one. You are my child. I see you. And I care for you. And I understand. And I am with you. I see you in your suffering. And I suffer with you. And I know it may not feel like it now. But I have a future for you and for your child. I see not only where you're coming from. But I see also where you are going. Though you cannot yet see it, I can. So do not give up on life. Do not give up on the world. Do not give up on others. Do not give up on yourself and do not give up on me. Now this is, of course, my own paraphrase of verses 7 through 12, but it is a fair and faithful one, I assure you. To which Hagar, in utter amazement, responds then in verse 13, You are Elroy. You are a God who sees. Okay, let's shift gears again. Let me talk for another minute about that billboard in the Great Gatsby. 
Turns out I'm not done with that book report after all. Again, the statement Fitzgerald is trying to make with this image, with this image of fading eyes overlooking a wasteland below, what Fitzgerald is trying to say is that this is what the world is, a valley of ashes, a solemn dumping ground, a wilderness, meaning there is no ultimate check on moral degradation and careless living which means that people like Tom and Daisy get away with everything and never have to answer for it. That anything goes. That power and position are what matters and that these run roughshod over everything else, trampling justice and righteousness along the way. That if God is dead, as Fyodor Dostoevsky says, anything goes. Now make no mistake, Fitzgerald is bemoaning this reality he doesn't like this reality, but nonetheless, he thinks it is reality. That the world, unfortunately, is but a wasteland, a solemn dumping ground for careless living. And no longer can we believe in the fiction of a just God overseeing earth's affairs below. That no longer can we believe and a God who sees. Which leads us finally to our gospel lesson for today, which comes to us from Matthew chapter 28. And here in Matthew 28, upon his resurrection, Jesus now spends 40 days appearing and reappearing to his disciples, teaching them and encouraging them and preparing them and then in his very final act with them, he leads them atop the mountain, commissions them to go forth and carry on his work and says to them, and lo, I am with you always to the very end. I am with you always. And upon this promise, our entire faith turns not only our faith in the reality of God and the fact of Christ's crucifixion, but with those things, our faith in a world where righteousness does prevail and where injustice does get reckoned with. For if this story is true, this story of Jesus of Nazareth crucified and resurrected, promising his disciples that he will be always with us, if this story is true, then the claim that injustice goes unseen and that anything goes, if that story is true, then this claim is a falsehood. For if this story is true, then there is most demonstrably a God who sees. And thus in seeing, there is a God who cares. And to tie this all together then, this is why I place the story of Hagar side by side with the story of Myrtle Wilson. I place these two stories side by side so as to highlight two different available options for understanding the broken and suffering world in which we live. Either we live in a world where a loving God does look down upon injustice and will indeed call it into question, 
or else we live in a world where injustice flourishes unabated. Either we live in a world of wonders as yet untold, or else we live in a world that is an altogether wasteland. And for those of us who trust in this first option, this world of wonders as yet untold, for us then the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar in Genesis 16 takes on a multivalent meaning. For the reality is for many of us sometimes we are Hagar and sometimes we are Abraham and Sarah. Sometimes we are abused and taken advantage of, hurt and mistreated, wounded and alone. Sometimes that is us. And then other times we are Abraham and Sarah, treating others and the world with carelessness and contempt, lost in our own little worlds, concerned only with our own well-being, completely overlooking the plight of those around us, those most in need of our love and our mercy. Sometimes that too is us. So yes, this passage presents an unflattering picture of Abraham and Sarah. But the truth is, if we really understand it, it also presents an unflattering picture of ourselves as well. Just as it meanwhile presents grounds for great wonder and hope for Hagar, yes. But along with her, it presents great grounds of hope for wonder for us as well. For in the end, if we'll have ears to hear, what we glean from this story is that no matter what we are up to, no matter what we are doing with our lives, no matter who we are doing it to and with, no matter what is being done to us, what we glean from this story is that no matter what, we are not alone, that God is with us always, that we live and move and have our being before a God who sees. When I sent out my request to our congregation for favorite scriptures, Sarah Crocker wrote to me saying, I'm fascinated with the Hagar story. She's perhaps my favorite person in all of scripture. She had the singular honor of naming God El Roy, the God who sees. This story tells us so much about how God thinks and feels and treats the most marginalized and destitute. This verse and Hagar's story contrasts the often negative view of the Old Testament God as being punitive and angry. The modern day application of this story is simple and beautiful. God sees us at our worst and comes to us and redeems us and provides. Well, amen and amen. And so in a world of wonder that we often treat as a wasteland, in a world where sometimes we are Abraham and sometimes Hagar, sometimes Tom Buchanan and sometimes Myrtle Wilson, in a world where careless people smash things up, in a world where sometimes we are the ones who've been smashed and sometimes we're the ones doing the smashing.
In such a world, it is deeply meaningful to remember that there are eyes constantly looking down upon us and that they are not the quickly fading eyes of Fitzgerald's billboard, but instead the never-fading eyes of Elroy, the God who sees. Lo, I am with you always, the incarnate God says. A promise vouchsafed to Hagar 2,000 years before. A promise vouchsafed to us 2,000 years later. So all thanks be to God for seeing not only where we have come from, but also where it is that we are going. Amen.